electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to help you make money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Hope is not a strategy. Too bad, because I'm seeing a lot of hope right now. I always applaud optimism because I bought my first stock when the Dow Jones average was about 34,000 points below where it is now. But I recognize there are times when hope is all you have, and hope can be a pretty thin read. Of course, just because I say hope is not a strategy, I'm not telling you to abandon all positivity, including on a day like today where the averages started strong and then rolled over. Dow ultimately dipping 88 points, S&P declining 0.34%, NASDAQ, which was soaring at the opening, finished down 0.3%. In fact, I think you can do very well right now in a balanced portfolio that also has a lot of cash on the sidelines. You want to be ready for the moment when things actually get better. It's just that there's so much uncertainty, you've got to be a little more cautious than we might like, at least in a number of key sectors. Allow me to explain. First, I like to buy whenever I have some visibility into something good that might happen in the future but I don't want to foment false positivity. So let's talk about what happened today. The most salient item, the consumer price index came in at 8.5%. Now that's the highest reading in more than 40 years and it's the worst number you could possibly have. I immediately tried to pick it apart. Why? I was looking for any signs that it could be the last horrible number, that inflation might be peaking. Meaning these would be so much so, the bad numbers that we've been waiting for, so we can start buying. The only thing I found was the possibility that used cars, which are part of this index, might be turning down. We know that because CarMax, a terrific used car chain, reported some terrible numbers this very morning, with same-store sales down 6.5% when Wall Street expected they'd be roughly flat. Why? Why were they down? Well, the average used car rose 40% in price year over year, or $8,300. Let's call that highway robbery. How can something go up that much and not crush the confidence of the buyer? The answer, it can't. 
You know, we call it in fancy economic classes what's known as demand destruction. And we're seeing demand destruction right now, right here in used cars. Now, how can these price increases be so crazy? It's simple. Because the automakers don't have enough semiconductors to ramp up the production of new cars. That's throwing off pricing for the entire industry. So you have to ask, uh, what can bring that down? Well, you need more microchips. You look at many of the semiconductor stocks, and they've been clubbed. Why? Because they aren't making the right kinds of chips. Historically, the profit margins of the basic chips the automakers need just aren't great enough for the really fabulous chip makers to pivot and manufacture them aggressively. Very different kind of chip. Shouldn't amalgamate. They're not all the same. Now, our country's finally making strides in building new factories. It could help, but it's years and years and years away before those factories are ready. How do we end up with this chip shortage? For years, American companies have tried to have very little capital tied up in semiconductors or even any components in general. We thought the real money was in designing chips, not manufacturing them. We've now been in this jam for two years, and we won't get out of it until later this year at the earliest. That means the used car prices will likely stay elevated unless we get more demand destruction. Either way, it's bad news for the economy. So there was nothing there for me. Now, it might be natural to think that something has to stop going higher in price. But when I look at the two most visible things we purchase, food at the store and gas at the pump, nothing good happening. Food's a fungible item. Trades worldwide. One of the things you want going for you if you're in the business of buying food is a bread basket, or to be more specific, the bread basket of the world, Ukraine. Thanks to the Russian invasion, something like 13% of all the calories we produce in the entire world could be in jeopardy. Russia's unprovoked act of aggression has taken Ukraine off the grid. And the sanctions on Russia have also taken Russian crops off the international market. There'll be no help from Eastern Europe to get food prices down. And the war has had a similar impact on oil, because Russia's a giant producer, and now all sorts of countries are increasingly wary of buying their fossil fuels. Oil at $100, which is where it was today, has more to do with a lack of supply than strong demand when you think that China's basically shut down for the duration. Of course, it goes beyond commodities. As Gary Friedman, the straight-shooting CEO of RH, formerly Restoration Harbor, pointed out in his latest conference call, the psyche of the consumer has taken a huge hit from all this turmoil. Again, being hurt at the register is nothing like the kind of humanitarian disaster the people of Ukraine are suffering through, and I don't mean to equate that. But this is a stock market show, and the market cares about damage to our economy. I'm not being heartless. I'm just trying to help you make some money here. Joe, I'm actually bullish on the American consumer overall, like uh, Matt Boss, the uh, retail analyst from J.P. Morgan was on last night. But on any given day, I say, come on. I mean, you don't want to plunge in on a day when inflation is simply out of control and mortgage rates are still climbing and oil's back at 100. Oh, and let's deal with the elephant in the room. No, let's deal with at least one of the bigger elephants in the room, China. You often hear from our experts that the Chinese government is full of geniuses. You'd, you'd think the Communist Party can do no wrong, right? At least in a tactical sense. Obviously, no one's denying they do a lot wrong in a moral sense. Yet now the People's Republic of China is going all in on a policy that's been repudiated by the rest of the world, a lockdown for COVID. The whole country's basically quarantined, including the places that make so many cheap goods that the rest of the world relies on. From the looks of things now, many of our manufacturers probably wish they had an ABC or any place but China policy when it comes to manufacturing. You know what? You know what's the craziest part? China's got an almost 90 percent vaccination rate. Should be fine, right? The problem is the government refused to use Western mRNA vaccines 
like the ones from Pfizer or Moderna, which is bio, you know, don't forget, Pfizer, BioNTech in Germany. I mean, so it's not really just the United States. Instead, China went with its own homegrown vaccines that have much lower efficacy. In other words, they'd rather lock down their entire country than use our vaccines. I hesitate what to call that, so I'll use my kind of benign term, suboptimal. I think that our tech companies will figure out other places to do their manufacturing. See, at this point, they have to. They can no longer afford to be hostage to a country once thought to be so business friendly that's willing to shut down. Why? Because of national pride. But that'll take a long time to move, wean yourself out of China. And it's not something you can include in your calculus of whether to buy tech stocks. Now, even with all these negatives, there are still tons of good things that could happen. The war could end in Ukraine. China could open for business. The new semiconductor foundries will eventually make the chips we need. The consumer's collective psyche can change. The problem I have right now, though, is the problem that grips a market that opens much higher on a not-as-hot-feared not CPI uh, and yet then goes right back down because there are too many quandaries to call a top in the CPI, especially it doesn't do any good to think about tech. That's what's being hurt the worst. Bottom line, when there are fewer problems, you're leaving the realm of help, of hope and headed toward the realm of reasonable possibilities. We don't want to be in the hope. I love betting on reasonable possibilities. That's why we've got so much cash ready for the travel trust so we can pounce when we start seeing them. But for now, all we've got is hope. And that's not enough of, not enough of a game plan for this guy. And it shouldn't be enough for you. AJ in New York. AJ. Hey, Jim. This is AJ Vallon from Long Island, New York. How are you doing? With down about 70% from its 52-week high, do you believe it is still a strong stock to hold? Or should I look to sell even though my average price is around $370? I cannot believe that Roku doesn't make money. And we don't recommend stocks in the show that have that kind of revenue growth and don't make money. That's just wrong. Let's go to Don in Georgia, please. Don. Hey, Jim. Hey, Don. Thanks for, thanks for taking my call. My question's on Ford Motor Company. Um, big advocate of Ford. Love their product. My son owns the Maverick. Great little truck. Wanted to ask you what your thoughts on are on uh, the chip shortage and when we might start seeing another upward swing towards the 20s. I don't know if it might be this well, year, next year, or what's sure. your thoughts on Well, first, Don, um, we are kindred. My son, Your son and me, I have the Maverick. I love it. I love it so much that my wife took it because she thinks it's fantastic. The problem is they can't make enough of them. Why can't they? Well, because they don't have enough chips. They also have very high commodity costs. That said, I think after a couple of months, I think they're finally getting their arms around us. But it may not help this quarter. Still, the stock is so cheap. Uh, we own it for the trust. I can't, you know, we sold some higher. I still like it, though. We have a reasonable size position. All right, now look, speaking of reasonable, I love betting on reasonable possibilities. But for now, all we've got is hope. And hope is not enough to put money to work with. On Man Money Tonight, we're continuing our series on finding growth at a reasonable price and surveying the financials to see if any of the key players are worth eyeing. Then could high peak energy be a high point in this market? I'm thinking close look at the oil gas stock. And tech stocks like Twilio have really fallen out of fashion, the Wall Street fashion show. But I'm seeing if this cloud stock could buck the trend with a whole new survey about what customers want. We're going to talk to the CEO. So stay with Kramer.
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. We're always searching for new ways to play winning ideas. For the last 10 months or so, we've done very well pushing the oil and gas producers, especially Devon Energy, owned by the club, Pioneer Natural Resources, Diamondback Energy, and the elusive Kotera. But honestly, you could have thrown a dart at the oils and you would have done pretty well. The S&P Oil and Gas Exploration and Production ETF, the XOP, it's up roughly 45% in 2022. It's up 81% over the past 12 months. Lots of ways to win when the price of crude is spiking. And tonight... I got another one for you. And this one you're going to really love. And yeah, I believe you've never heard of it. Recently, we've learned from a highly trusted source about a relatively new player in the exploration production space. It's called High Peak Energy, which has seemingly come out of nowhere to put up some of the best numbers in the entire industry. After hearing that, we decided to open the book. That's right. Check the files. Do some homework. And what we found is so very compelling that we have to recommend it to you, even though the stock is already up 50% for the year. 5-0. What's so special about this one? Okay, High Peak is an independent oil and gas company run by a fellow named Jack Hightower. He's a grizzled veteran of the oil patch who's created a tremendous amount of value over the course of his career. Titan, Pure Resources, Celero Energy. With High Peak, he's created an oil producer with 63,000 acres in the Midland Basin, which is one of the most oil-rich regions within the Permian Basin in Texas and the world. Thanks to his tremendous acreage, I mean, he's got it. The company's become one of the most cost-effective operators in the region. It's small, but it's cost-effective. And it's also got the best operating margins, which is pretty amazing. Their break-even price is just $28 a barrel of oil equivalent. And they're selling this crude at $100. 
That's the best margin in the entire industry. I say this thing came out of nowhere because Hypeing is actually the product of a SPAC merger. It's one of the rare post-SPAC stories that made you a lot of money if you participated in it. You know, I think that most of them are, I, I would call them scams in the old days. Now I just say they're ill-advised. It probably helps that the SPAC merger that created the current version of this company was announced way back in 2019. You know, and that was before everybody went crazy with these special purpose acquisition vehicles. A SPAC called Pure Acquisition ultimately merged with High Peak in August of 2020, although uh, the company didn't raise a ton of money. Uh, the, they really sold only about $100 million. Since coming public, High Peak's been buying up oil properties left and right, in total, they've added 9,500 net acres. Now, that's not a lot for any of the larger oil companies we talk about, but just right for an aggressive smaller operator. They used a period where oil remained fairly weak to snap up this land at a good price. Now they're on track to grow their production dramatically this year, making High Peak unique among exploration production companies. Most players in this industry have been loath to drill or expand because they're happy with the current status quo. They don't want to overspend and flood the market with oil. I don't blame them. Ultimately, that would just push the price down. But when everybody else is being disciplined, a company like High Peak Energy, well, guess what? They can get away with boosting their production. They can't cause a crushing of the price of crude, um, which means they'll make fortunes as they pump more and more oil. Oh, what a smart plan. Oh, now, and look, their acreage is tremendous. High Peak's production is 85% crude oil. Whereas other companies in the Permian Basin tend to average around uh, 65 to 70% of oil. Remember, natural gas is the, is the other component, and that's worth much less. They're also very efficient at finding new oil, with a finding and development cost of less than $10 per barrel. Again, the best in the industry. At the same time, High Peak's on track to see a huge increase in its reserves this year. A couple of weeks ago, an analyst at a place called Water Tower Research released a note about how the company could add roughly 100 wells to its proved development reserves, uh, column this year. Do you think that's $3.4 to $3.8 billion worth of reserves? But it's not just uh, High Peak's assets that are great. The company's also got magnificent execution. When these guys reported their latest results a month ago, they easily beat Wall Street's estimates, not that there are many. High Peak produced 14,881 barrels of oil equivalent per day. The analysts were only looking for 14,360, 81% production growth. As a result, the sales and earnings came in much better than expected. Perhaps most important, they're drilling really aggressively at the right time. And that time is now, with crude at roughly $100 a barrel. Remember all the stories you saw all day? Like $100 a barrel, $100 a barrel, and like, oh, woe is me. $100 a barrel. Revenge. Revenge is, is high peak energy. High peak's got four rigs running right now. They drilled 14 net horizontal wells in the most recent quarter. As long as oil prices stay elevated, they're going to keep drilling aggressively. Again, I've spent months constantly praising the discipline of oil companies like Devon, remember Rick Moncrief, and Pioneer, uh, that's uh, Sheffield. They're both so smart. They refuse to invest heavily in drilling. Instead, most of the major players now prefer to return capital to you, to the shareholders via dividends and buybacks. That spending discipline has created an extremely bullish environment for oil prices. But it also allows a company like High Peak to act as a free rider. As long as the major players are being disciplined, these guys can drill, 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 drill aggressively, produce a lot more oil, reap the rewards of higher prices and not crush the price of oil. And that's why the numbers here are so incredible. As CEO Jack Hightower put it, and I quote, we recognize the massive underinvestment in energy over the past several years. And contrary to industry sentiment, we forged ahead and positioned ourselves for responsible growth, end quote. 
He went on to add that they might even accelerate their drilling activity this year if prices stay strong, which they obviously are. At the end of the day, High Peak Energy is a growth company, and they've gone, you know, they've got to act like a growth company, which means spending aggressively on production increases when the price of oil has gone through the roof. This is how every oil company uh, in the world used to behave. It was a bad attitude for the entire industry because it meant that we constantly got flooded with new supply. But it's a great attitude for one smaller player to have when the heavy hitters of the oil patch have decided to scale back their drilling. If everybody in the industry acted like high peak and the price of crude would collapse, well, you know what? I wouldn't spend 10 seconds on this one. Just the opposite. Right now, everybody's being responsible, like Pioneer and Devon, which means the opportunistic guys at high peak can make out like bandits, and there aren't too many of them. Perhaps most important, even though the stock has been on a tear, it's still fairly cheap compared to its peers. I'm looking at the enterprise multiples here. That's the enterprise value to EBITDA ratio. That's uh, because this is a capital intensive industry and the enterprise multiple takes their debt laden balance sheets into account. High peak has an enterprise multiple of roughly three. Devin and Pioneer are both five. Coterra and Diamondback are just under five. Part of that's because High Peak is a much smaller dividend than most of these. It only yields 0.46. But it, even when you look at something with a lower yield like Occidental Petroleum, this one's still much cheaper. Here's the bottom line about this great little find that I think, even though I'm obviously not early, has far more to go. If you believe the price of oil can stay elevated here, possibly because the war in Ukraine will turn into a drawn-out stalemate, then you'll likely get more upside out of an aggressive oil producer like High Peak Energy. Keep in mind, this is a lot, one's a lot more risky than a Devon, which the Chapel Trust owns, or a Pioneer, which I wish the trust owned. We can't at all, with their huge variable dividends. But if you believe in oil here, this is the one for you. Man, money's back in for break. Coming up, Kramer explains the world according to Garp. Don't get literary on us. Find out why this acronym deserves your attention. Next. Experience the joy of running in the new Triumph 22 from Saucony, the original running brand. Stacked with luxury foam cushioning, Triumph 22 turns miles into smiles with the ultimate blend of comfort and energy return. Shop Triumph 22 at Saucony.com. That's S-A-U-C-O-N-Y.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like I told you last night, growth at any price went out of style in the Wall Street fashion show nearly six months ago, as we saw that again today. Now what this market wants is something entirely different. It wants GARP, 
growth at a reasonable price. That's why we spent the weekend chopping up the S&P 500, running its constituent parts through a series of screens to identify companies with above average earnings growth, but enticingly cheap valuations. We're going sector by sector. Yesterday, we kicked things off with the Garpius travel and restaurant stocks because I think the whole space will boom as COVID recedes. People are desperate to leave the house. Tonight, though, we're identifying growth at a reasonable price in another group that should thrive in this environment, the financials, one of the few industries that benefits directly when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates. Now, later this week, earnings season officially kicks off, and we're going to hear from the six largest banks in America, beginning with the largest, J.P. Morgan, tomorrow morning. But if you're looking for growth at a reasonable price, you should look elsewhere. You might be better off focusing on the more under-the-radar, underappreciated financials that the money, major money managers, really, they, they've been fleeing them like rats from a sinking ship, creating the opportunity that you need to run toward them. Tonight, I've got four of them that pass the GARP test. So let's start with number one. Let's start with Signature Bank. This is a New York-based commercial bank, but it's got uh, 36 private client offices sprinkled across the New York metro area, California, and North Carolina. The thing about Signature is that it's a business-oriented bank, and to the extent that they have a consumer business, it's focused on the wealthy, namely business owners and senior executives who do a lot of business, and you can make a lot of money working with. This is not a stock we've covered too often, although I mentioned it in January because it was the fifth best performing SP 500 last year. I went over the top guys. At the time, I told you Signature had run too much. Recommended waiting for a better entry point, just finding a bank stock that was cheaper on a book value basis. Well, that was a good call. Stock down 17% when we did that. But then we ran our growth at a reasonable price screen. And when you look at Signature on an earnings basis rather than a book value basis, the valuation makes a lot more sense, especially after the stock's recent decline. Right now, this really fine institution sells for just 13 times earnings, which I think is very enticing given its tremendous consistent growth rate. Remember, many of the biggest banks will see earnings decline this year with capital markets activity down dramatically to begin with. Capital markets mean like underwritings, corporate uh, deals, uh, M&A, you know, that kind of thing. Plus, the situation has changed for the banks. Signature has a ton of interest rate sensitivity, which makes it a lot more attractive now that the Federal Reserve is on the warpath. Talking about a series of aggressive rate hikes so that they'll take your deposits, pay you next to nothing, and invest that money risk-free in higher-yielding short-term treasuries. That's what happened in 1992. Made banks a fortune. Yet the stock's still down substantially. I think it's crazy. Signature dipped their toes into the crypto space, so maybe the, uh, that's been hurting them? I don't know. People like crypto. I don't see it as a huge part of the story. Meanwhile, we keep hearing great things about the company itself. Just yesterday, analysts at Jefferies said Signature had one of their finest setups among the mid-cap banks as we head into earnings season. Last Thursday, Morgan Stanley made a very similar argument. My view, Signature Bank gives you growth at a reasonable price, and I like its stock going into earnings next Tuesday. Next up, oh, we've got two underappreciated financials that are actually kind of boring. State Street and Bank of New York Mellon. Those are the two largest custodial banks. Custodial bank, they keep your money. So it's, you know, they basically do everything behind the scenes for institutional investors. Uh, the company has a mind-numbing of the, the um, State Street, which is our, our major focus, but we also have another one. State Street has a mind-numbing amount of assets. When I tell you the number, you're not going to believe it. It's $43.7 trillion. 
$43.7 trillion at the end of last year. Now, it's an incredibly consistent, incredibly sticky business. At the same time, State Street's got a smaller investment management firm that's aimed mainly at ETFs with $4.14 trillion in assets under management. While this is a state business, it's also ambitious. Last year, they announced the acquisition of Brown Brothers Hireman Investor Services Division for $3.5 billion, becoming the world's largest custodian in the process. That deal should close any day now. State Street also launched a digital finance division with the goal of being a custodian for cryptocurrencies the same way they're currently a custodian for stocks and bonds. Now, most of this business is fee-based, but State Street does have some insensitivity to asset prices because they charge a teensy tiny percentage of their assets under custody as part of those fees. So it's no surprise that the stocks pulled back nearly 22% from its highs in January, although that move seems very extreme to me. State Street's on track to grow its fee-based revenue by 10% just this year. Their net interest income should jump by 20%. The fact you can get this for just under 10 times earnings, I find to be absurd. I call it growth at a reasonable price, but I think State Street is unreasonably cheap. And I like the stock ahead of the earnings report on Thursday morning. Custodial bank, not a lot of risk when you're a custodial bank. All right, how about another one that people don't like? Bank of New York Mellon. Now, these guys have very similar business to State Street. Similar growth rate, similar valuation. They even have the same 2.8% dividend yield. Bank of New York Mellon has pulled back a bit more aggressively, down 26% from its peak in February. Uh, I, I, just like State Street, I think that's like a terrible overreaction. Honestly, I have a tough time choosing between these two at the moment. In the end, they're in a race to see who comes up with the first custodial platform for cryptocurrency. Until we know the winner, I think you're, the fi- you're fine owning either one. Remember, these have been thrown away by managers who want to own banks that have those lucrative deposit bases. But I think they've been aggressively punished and therefore gotten too cheap. Finally, there's one that I, I, I think you all identify with, and I think it's an amazing bargain. It's Charles Schwab. Yes, the discount brokerage firm that no one's paying attention to because we're all focused on the dramatic rise and fall of Robinhood markets. Robinhood uh, it, it made a huge commotion, right? But it's Schwab that has quietly been going about its business after a wave of consolidation, including the $26 billion acquisition of TD Ameritrade that closed a year and a half ago. Right now, Schwab is far and away the largest player in the retail brokerage space, with more than $8 trillion worth of total client assets. Perhaps more important, if you think the Fed will relentlessly raise interest rates, Schwab is a huge winner from higher rates. 60% of the revenue comes from interest rate-sensitive business, including money market fee waivers. Nobody else in the industry comes close. Let me put, put it this way for you. Schwab's earnings are expected to increase at a 26% compound annual growth rate over the next two years. Yet its stock sells for less than 20 times earnings. In other words, the price-to-earnings multiple is lower than the growth rate which is exactly what I mean when I talk about growth at a reasonable price. doesn't hurt, by the way, that Schwab's stock has come down 17% from its highs. Let me give you the bottom line on these. Well, everyone's focused on the six big banks. I get that reporting later this week, and you know I think they're going to be okay. I think it's a good time to pay some attention to the underappreciated financials with GARP appeal. You want growth at a reasonable price? Watch out for Signature Bank, State Street, Bank of New York Mellon, and Schwab, as they report over the next week. We don't invest in hope. We invest in possibilities. And the odds of winning with growth at a reasonable price have rarely looked this good. Let's go to Larry in Illinois. Larry. Jim, thank you. I, first, my heart reaches out to all of you in New York. 
And, it, and what's happened today is unbelievable. Just, I'm so, so sorry. It is humble. It is just to me. I, I live in Brooklyn. I was talking to my wife. I mean, it's it's just terrible. And I'm and I thank you for that. That is a really nice. And to all of your people, your staff, what goes through everyone's minds, the multiplication. This thing is crazy. Anyway, I don't want to take too much of your time, and I want to thank you on Financial Literacy Month oh, for yeah. educating for all these years. It's just if you could just be multiplied. I don't know. It'd be great. Now. My question is about Blackstone. If you look at the chart on Blackstone, it's gone through the roof over the years. And recently it's come down from like 150 down to about 114. Earnings are coming out on the 21st. What's your take on it? I like it very much. They've been doing a lot in the capital markets uh, instead of what they're taking business from what banks used to do. It is run by Stephen Schwartzman, who happened to have seen last weekend, who is so darn smart. And Jonathan Gray, who I've known for, I don't know, 30 years. You've got fabulous people at the top of this, and you've got a good yield, and you've got great assets. I say Blackstone is terrific. All right, guys, I think it's a good time to pay some attention to the underappreciated financials with Garp Appeal. These are never, ever talked about. Why? Because they're too boring? I like to make money. Boring is good. Watch out for Signature Bank, that's my fave, State Street, Bank of New York Mellon, and then Schwab as a report over the next week. Hey, much more made money, including my exclusive with Twilio. Tech's next battleground is customer engagement. I'm learning more about how the cloud company is bringing the divide, the divide bridging the divide with the CEO, and believe me, that is not an easy bridge. Then, is it possible that too much Apple? I'm really what to do with the stock after its recent run. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Last week, we got a big study from Twilio. That's the cloud-based communications platform that helps huge companies like Lyft, uh, Twitter, Salesforce, Airbnb connect with their customers via text, phone, email, or video, whatever the customer wants. Now, this was their State of Customer Engagement 2022 report about how digitization can help improve your business. And it kind of blew me away. According to the report, digital customer engagement can generate a 70% revenue boost. Customer personalization has become essential for corporate survival, and consumers are desperate for data privacy. With that in mind, let's check in with Jeff Lawson, the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Twilio, to hear more about these findings. Oh, Mr. Lawson, welcome back to Bad Money. Thanks for having me back, Jim. Jeff, this report, I've read this report five times, five times since I got it. Why? Because I cannot believe that the corporations and their customers are so at odds. How is that possible? You know, we've done this survey many years and we survey a a bunch of business leaders throughout different industries, different continents, different sized companies. We also survey consumers and we see how the needs of consumers are getting met by companies. They always find these interesting gaps. You know, I thought it was really example that in our survey, 75% of companies said they did a great job of personalizing their services for uh, for their customers. Yet 50% of consumers said companies did at best an average job, but most of them like poor or even bad. And so it shows you this gap. And I think it's because, you know, companies think they're personalizing something when they when they put our first name in the email. Hey, Jim, you know, like, it's personalized. No, it's personal, right? And then they blast you the same irrelevant content, whereas what consumers really want 
It's for companies to listen to them, to pay attention to them, and to tailor how they engage with them to their interests and the things they've bought in the past. That's considered to be friendly, helpful. You're paying attention as a company when they do that. And most companies just aren't yet doing a great job of it, but those that are are really reaping the rewards. You know, those companies in our survey that said they were investing in this digital engagement, they saw an average, an average of 70% revenue growth in the past year. And that is just amazing when you think about the breadth of companies that are in that. Now, I do want to put in a plug for Twilio in the sense that you have a platform and people who use it will be able to close that gap. They will know. I mean, it's very funny. You gave you gave a talk recently, Morgan Stanley, I believe. And you talked about how you always like to buy one kind of outfit and they keep sending you. They keep pushing things that you don't want. I think that your platform will make that seem ridiculous. It would never happen. Exactly. Right. Think about things that you've bought from companies. You know, I buy a lot of black wool T-shirts. That's what I've been wearing a lot of during the right. pandemic. And yet the company keeps sending me like emails daily, like advertising things like women's hats. And you're like, are you paying any attention at all to who I am? And when I'm like, and eventually what do you do? You click on subscribe because you're like, this is just noise in my life. And you click on subscribe and there is a great um, uh, amount of uh, frustration with all these digital noise that's out. So consumers are unsubscribing. And when they do that to your brand, what do you do? What do you do? You've lost your voice with that customer. And essentially what you need to do is go reacquire that customer. You need to go buy ads. And what it ends up with is a world where you buy transactions. You buy an ad, they click through, they buy something, and you think about, I've got transactions. And what the leading companies are doing is saying, no, I can't keep reacquiring my customers. I need relationships. Right. Now, one of the things that people also want, as Tim Cook said so eloquently today, they want relationship, but they want that uh, privacy. Now, that would seem in some ways to be uh, at odds, how to get privacy and also build a relationship. But that's another solution that you're coming up with. It's actually fairly intuitive, right? When a company goes out and buys a bunch of data about you, from you know, acquired via data brokers, and there's all these weird industries of people buying right. and selling right. personal data about you and me, you're like, that's creepy. Stop doing that. Uh, and if people knew half the stuff that was going on, they would be horrified. And so that's the category of things you're like, that's not a relationship. That's you buying creepy data about me. We need to stop that. And right now, the laws, as well as the changes, platforms like Apple and and even Google and Facebook are, are having to go through are actually helping us to create a more private world. But on the flip side, when you think about Amazon or Google, right, they use the data that we give them with our browsing habits. What right. do we click on? What do we not? What do we buy? What do we return? And that's why your Amazon homepage and mine, Jim, are completely different. That's why your Google search results for the same thing right. and mine are completely different. They're personalizing that product and making it better for us. And what do we say? We say, thank you. We give them more business. And so now every company is having to go through and get as good as Amazon and Google at understanding us and then personalizing every one of those engagements with us to make it a better product experience. That's exactly what Toyo's platform does. We have our segment, which is the leading customer data platform in the market, which helps you understand your customer from all that data. And then all of Toyo's communications APIs, uh, which help you actually um, create engagement that resonates. I know, Jeff, are are the companies that are still using cookies clueless about what's going to happen and really fall behind if they don't make changes now? It's it's just super hard, right? In our survey, half of companies say they are still unprepared for this cookie-less world because you have to wean yourself off of a lot of like bad habits and lazy things. Yeah, I kind of think of when you know the refrigeration industry used Freon and we found out that Freon was destroying the ozone layer. <laughs> so they had to wean themselves off of this. It right. took years and years. 
And but the thing is, refrigeration. There's like a small number of refrigeration companies in the world. These cookies and how companies are using this data online is like this is every company that does business online. And so it's just a big change. Yet so many companies are still unprepared, despite the fact that this change is going to be done around the end of this year. The last of the major browsers, and you've got Safari, you've got uh, Firefox that have already implemented these changes, forbidding these third-party cookies, and Chrome is next. And when that happens, companies will be unprepared if they don't actually invest in the technologies to understand their customers. I got to ask one more question. I know I'm getting waved off, but I, I, I checked with some younger people today. You mentioned digital fatigue, and I'm like, I said, what's digital fatigue? Generally, everybody I mentioned to said, yeah, of course, and it's killing me. Digital fatigue. You've introduced this to, oh, to everybody. What, what it means uh, to me and to our customers when we talk to them or in this survey, it just says companies have to do a great job. Just, just cramming more messages down these digital pipes is not the answer. It's actually crafting better messages that actually work, <laughs> that actually are relevant. And that's how you stay top of mind for customers today. Otherwise, they should just close the lid and walk outside. Well, and that's I, I got to tell you, I don't, I don't own any small businesses right now. But it doesn't matter whether you're large or small. The lessons here are incredible in this data customer engagement report of 2022. This is if you're in business, any business, read this. You will not believe how many mistakes you are making. And you don't think you're making a single one. That's Jeff Lawson, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Twilio. Jeff, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Jim. Everybody be back here to the break. Whatever question you have. Should I buy, sell, or hold? Would you recommend sitting on the sidelines? Kramer's got the answer. Your business is on fire, and I think you just got to hold it. The lightning round is coming up next. It is time. It's time for the lightning round. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Time for the lightning round. Here's my name. I'm going to start with Karen in Virginia. Karen. Hi, Jim. Happy Tuesday. Same. I'm actually calling about Monday. M-N-D-Y. Oh, you know, the collaborative software was such a hot business. But I got to tell you, Karen, it's, they're losing too much money. So I've got to say no to Monday. Ken in Illinois. Ken. Hi, Jim. My Hi, Ken. Com- uh, my company does energy play and is a construction play, and the name is Sunrun. What do you think? I would rather own Tesla, which has somewhat having to do the same thing, okay, uh, in solar, than own Sunrun, which is losing a lot of money. So it's not my cup of tea, which this is my cup of tea. Can I have Brad in Connecticut, please, Brad? Hi, Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Welcome to be on with you. Love listening to your show. If I may, quick match shout out to a great mentor of mine, Mr. William Greeley. So, Jim, I know four-letter words are not allowed on national TV, but I'm calling about a fact. The potential electric business combo with Boris Guggenheim and Polestar, ticker GGPI. Yeah, you know, there was a time, a time where I would have said, this one could be good, especially because of the, the uh, deal uh, with Hearst. I can't do that because even though I've got that deal, they're going to lose money for a long time. And we don't stand for that anymore on mad money. How about Glenn in Texas, please? Glenn. 
Hi, Jim. This is Glenn. I got a, I bought Tilray at five. Was that a good buy? And I'm considering buying Hexo if they can get their debt under control. I, I think that Tilray is actually a, a company that's going to make a lot of money as we go uh, national with, with, uh, with cannabis. And that's Erwin uh, Simon. And he has decided to really run the company like a business, not like a pot company. How about we go to Michael in Florida? Michael. Hey, Jim, big book written Booyah for you. Thank you. Hey, uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on N-Lock and LifeLock. Is this a bull okay. play or a bear play? We sold uh, our whole position at a very big profit for the Chapel Trust. Why did we do that? Quite simply, because they promised several times to close the deal. And they didn't close the deal. And so we closed the deal with them and got rid of it. Let's go to Mike in New Jersey. Mike went Pike. Hey there, Mr. Kramer. Hi, Mike. Hi. Uh, watch your show all the time. Thank you. I love it. And uh, thank you very much for taking my phone call. Sure. Um, well, I'm uh, approaching retirement, and I've owned a stock, uh, well, a limited partnership, EPD, and I've had it for over 20 years, and it's always paid an excellent dividend. I think you should hold on to that. And if it drops by more, it has been the only one of those other than One Oak that I have said you can buy. I'm actually broadening the list because it's such a good business. KMI and I can't believe we say this, ET, which I usually say don't call home. But that is, wow, that's a great business. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, can there be too much of a good thing? Kramer explains a trade that may have caught you by surprise. Next. Kramer, you are super. You are awesome. I'm a first-time investor. Thank you for inspiring me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you're on TV. I want you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer. This morning, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, gave an impassioned speech advocating for your right to privacy. He wants you to be protected from the data industrial complex. He doesn't want corporations mining details about your life in order to give you a more targeted advertising experience. Cook says these companies don't want you to have a choice. No one would stand for that in the real world. Why would we stand for it in the digital world? I think that's just still one more reason why Apple's such a beloved company. And make no mistake, I love Apple as much as anyone. No, I mean, probably more so. So why the heck did we sell some Apple stock for the charitable trust? What was the point with so much good news ahead? Were we worried about some number cuts from China because the PRC is going to lockdown mode? Supply chain weakness? Uh, weakness in America because everything's going up in price. Tell you the truth, it was really none of that at all. We've been unwavering in our support and commitment for Apple. For years, I've told you to own it. Don't trade it while others have endlessly flitted in and out of the stock. But because we kept holding Apple for the Chapel Trust, we have one of the highest quality problems you can experience when you're managing a diversified portfolio. Very simply, thanks to Apple's amazing performance, 
which I think got so big it accounted for 6.7% of the charitable trust assets. I'm trying to teach people how to manage a diversified portfolio. And as I see it, and have always felt it since we started this experiment, we never want a single stock to get bigger than 5% of the trust. We regard that as too concentrated. As I was telling a subscriber last night, we felt that we'd become the Apple Fund, that we were swinging every which way whenever some analyst talked about a problem in China, too much inventory in the channel, sluggish sales, for whatever reason. When you've got a big winner, eventually you need to start taking some profits, even if you still love the underlying company. Otherwise, it gets too big and you're no longer diversified. Now, I know there are some hedge fund gunners out there who totally disagree. You could easily argue that your whole fund should be at Apple, given its incredible long-term performance. But there comes a point where prudence has to play a role in portfolio management. And prudence dictates what we call right-sizing a position. For travel trust, that means cutting it back to 5%, which is the maximum position for us. That way, Apple can still help you, but you won't be totally hostage to a single stock, no matter how good it is. I don't want to have to worry that I have too much Apple every time I see pictures of a lockdown in Shanghai, Beijing. I don't want to think, okay, I guess the trust will be down because some capricious reports that Apple suppliers are being cut back. When you own too much of something, you can't responsibly buy more of it on weakness, which is what I'd prefer to do with Apple. So I apologize to anyone who thinks I violated my own commandment that you need to own Apple, not trade it. But right-sizing a position that's up huge isn't trading. It's simply a basic part of responsible investing. If you're doing a decent job of picking stocks, sooner or later, you're going to have to make a similar call. It's better to trim your winning positions than let them grow so large that they unbalance your entire portfolio. I like to say there's always a bull market summer, and I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.